0: to episode 269 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. This show was uploaded on 20th of March, 2021.
1: The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash Spokesman. Hey, everybody, it's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at www.thefredcast.com. I'm one of the hosts and producers of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. For show notes, links, and all sorts of other information, please visit our website at www.the-spokesman.com. And now, here are the spokesmen.
0: I've got two themed episodes back-to-back for you, and they're both about play, or the lack thereof. Children's play, that is. Hi, I'm Carlton Reed, and on the first of these two themed episodes, I talk to author and child's play expert Tim Gill. On the next show, I go hyper-local with Tyneside academics Alison Stenning and Sally Watson. But today's hour-long show is more international in scope, as Tim cites international best practice from the U.S., Belgium, and Israel, as he warms to his theme that for too long we have neglected children's independent mobility. On today's show, I've got Tim Gill. Now, Tim, I've I've been hearing and and talking about Tim and writing about Tim for an awfully long time, and uh, I'll bring Tim in in a second. But I'll just I'll just tell him that I, I did a book. I can't even remember when it was. It was many, many years ago, and it was a children's bicycling book, and a large section of that uh, was about risk and why it's far, far better to to get out on your bike rather than, you know, wrap your child in in bubble wrap and never uh, get them out there. And I quoted extensively from Tim's uh, earlier book. So before we start talking about uh, your new book, Tim, which we will do. Tell me about the the risk elements of that first book and why it's far better to, as I said, to, to get out there doing stuff, climbing trees, doing childlike things, rather than just sitting there massively protected.
2: Sure. Well, uh, that's a lovely introduction because there, there's a nice link between the two, which we'll maybe explore. But my first book, so it's called No Fear, Growing Up in a Risk Averse Society. You can download the whole thing for free uh, as a PDF from my website. Um, so, uh, yeah, I've, I've no pecuniary interest in, 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 in it any longer. But essentially, it makes the case that part of a rich and healthy childhood is for children to, to learn how to deal with uncertainty, to, to have experiences that help them to prepare for the everyday ups and downs of life. Um, and that indeed, if we try too hard to protect children from all possible harm, uh, however well-meaning that may be, we, we actually do them a disservice. We, we we prevent them from having the kind of experiences that help them uh, on that journey to becoming a you know resilient, confident, capable, independent person. So that that's really at the heart of of um, no fear. And I just have signposted a little bit. It's 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 the sort of planning and design dimensions of that line of thought that that you can see um, coming out in 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 urban
0: playground, uh, which is your new book. Now I, I don't want to go uh, too personal, but I just w- I want to find out your kind of family background because that that would that would I'm sure colour everybody's picture here of of maybe where you started this research from originally. But what 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 kids? Who do you have kids? Yes. Okay.
2: Um, So, first of all, you know, I'm in my fifties. Like almost everybody from around the world, of whatever class uh, you you choose, uh, I enjoyed a lot of freedom in my childhood, and those experiences are still resonant to me. And I and I feel that they were, you know, an important part of, you know, who who I am today, uh, in ways that you know maybe not always immediately obvious. I'm also a dad. And my daughter is now in her early 20s and kind of coincidentally, she came along a couple of years after I fell into a weird job with a quirky outfit called the Children's Play Council back in the mid 90s. And, you know, I would be lying to you if I said that I have always been passionate about children's freedoms and and child development and health and well-being. That is not how my career has unfolded. I landed in this job for, for various reasons that, that that needn't trouble us here but um, and it was a part-time two-year fixed term contract um, but the, the the issues got under my skin I just found it really fascinating to to think about how children's lives have been changing and in particular their their freedoms and, and and their opportunity to play and get around and then when my daughter came along in 1998 you know the whole topic got rather more personal and important and and that I guess, relationship between the personal and the political has, has stayed with me.
0: I'm, I'm imagining you, you know, the Spartan thing of, you know, uh, leaving a child out on the rooftop to see if they're going to survive the night. In other words, but in the modern equivalent of that, like <laughs> chucking her up trees. So what kind of child did your daughter have? Were you were you exposing her to risk to kind of like as part of your Petri dish of this is what children should be like? How, how, how were you dealing with that aspect of, uh, of parenthood? Um, I really, I really hope not. Um, I mean,
2: that's, uh, I actually think I'm, I'm not a particularly, you know, adventurous person in many ways, you know, I mean, I like going for walks and, and off-road biking and stuff, but you know, the idea of jumping out of a plane leaves me like rigid with fear. Um, and more to the point, I, I guess I, I always use the talk about balance and, and being you know balanced and thoughtful. That's, that's the approach I was aiming for. And, I absolutely did not want my daughter to feel like she was some kind of weird experiment in, you know, um, in, in backwards uh, child rearing. Uh, no, I, I think and b- bear in mind, you know, this was back. This was pre almost pre Internet. It's certainly pre social media. So, you know, back then you could kind of you, as a parent, I didn't feel like my every decision was under the microscope. And I think that's a really big difference um with with parenting today um or you know over the last five or ten years so you know Rosa started walking to school when she was eight or nine um you know we had adventurous holidays with her I remember when she was 11 she we were on a big trip to Scandinavia in a camper van and, and and one afternoon we let her go back to the campsite on her own on a bike and she got lost and, and it took her about three times as long as it should have done. Um, you know, though the, the, these are, uh, I don't think we were, we were throwing her into the woods in the middle of the night, but we were recognising that there's, firstly, there's no such thing as a zero risk childhood. Um, and secondly, that some of the times when we learn the most are the times when we make mistakes, when um, as adults and as children, and um, when we get a little bit outside of our comfort zone, so that was certainly part of of, of, of our thinking with with
0: uh, bringing up our daughter. Mm. And you brought up your daughter. I think if I'm if, if your website is still up to date, in Walthamstow. Yes, that's right, where I still live. So Walthamstow is famous in cycling circles. I mean, I've I've had uh, Clyde Lokes, uh, the, the deputy leader, on at least twice, perhaps more, uh, talking about the the incredible. Changes that have happened probably while you've 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 lived there. So tell me a bit about Walthamstow, maybe how it's changed uh, while you've been there, and 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 tell me if it's better.
2: Right, uh, Walthamstow has changed for the better. Um, I, I won't take a whole load of credit for that. I've been on the sort of periphery of of some of the local debates, which, as you know, have been quite quite vociferous and and at times really unpleasant. Um, but uh, you know, it's it's a a victorian suburb uh like a lot of parts of of the sort of you know victorian fringes of london and some of uh, england's other cities terraced housing um and you know it's it's always been a a sort of scruffy place and and but in the last five or ten years it has i think just because of the mechanisms of the london housing market become somewhere more desirable to live so we've seen uh you know A shorthand would be a form of gentrification I think that's slightly overstating it but certainly you know significant numbers of of more wealthy people moving in um and greater concern for the quality of uh you know streets and public spaces and then again sort of slightly one of these quirks of fate that 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 Boris came along with his his largesse and and the mini Holland program and, and the Waltham Forest bid was successful and it it has made a huge difference to uh, significant parts of the borough it's you know that the traffic levels are much lower um, in within the I guess what you'd now call the low traffic neighborhood areas much higher levels of cycling you know I, I, hardly a day goes past now when I don't see at least two or three people riding around on cargo bikes which and, and you'll know how unusual that would have been even two or three years ago in London um, you know that it's complex and I, I can see some people There are some people who are very angry about the changes. There are some things that, you know, had I been closer to the action, I might have said, well, maybe you could do things a little bit differently. But by and large, I think a Walthamstow is rightly being held up as a model of the, the, you know, the transformational change that you can achieve if you get a better balance between the needs of car drivers and the needs of everybody else. Um, And the only way you make things better for walking and cycling is by making it harder for for car drivers. We know that, you know that, most of the people listening to this um, podcast will know that, but uh, I, I think many Holland programs show you uh, just how much better it can be. Um, and maybe also has some some lessons for how you can take these projects forward in 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 ways that build
0: consensus. And again, I don't want to get uh, too personal and, and, and geolocate you exactly. But do you live in one of these uh, newer low traffic neighbourhoods?
2: Not quite. No, I live on about five minutes walk from what's sometimes called Waltham So village Um but in a sort of reasonably leafy part of this borough. Um, And I I guess one of the interesting things about Waltham Forest is that as well as the Mini Holland programme, it has also supported some, you know, really progressive improvements in public space and parks and play areas. It's got some of the best local play areas, I think, in London. Um, It's a strong supporter of play streets, which you'll know, uh, you know, this sort of model of just closing the traffic for, for maybe a couple of hours a week, or even a couple of hours a month, uh, so that people can come out and enjoy the streets. So it would, it its there's a lot of good things happening in the borough that I can see right outside my door, more or less, even though I'm not part of um, the, the the mini Holland um, area, uh, it, you know, in, in, in its narrow sense.
0: Tim, you mentioned play streets there. I wasn't going to go down this one, uh, this this cul-de-sac straight away. But yeah, as you mentioned it, I mean, famously, the UK had permanent play streets, not just, you know, two, three hours a, a week play streets. But they had um, I mean, there was there was there was there was parliamentary acts to actually create uh, play streets I- in the UK. And you can look at the photographs of of where there's certainly a lot of where I live in Newcastle, um, and you look at the photographs of of what they used to be like, and there these there these little um, posters up saying you know this is a play street, and you couldn't even cycle down these play streets. So uh, w- tell us more about the 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 history of that and and what happened and, and why they disappeared. Right,
2: it's it's a really interesting question, and um and there's a there's a sort of slightly hidden narrative in my book that I, I hope I might one day be able to to, to um, unpack some more which is that you could say that the history of, of urban planning certainly residential urban planning over the last hundred years or so has been a kind of battle between children and cars and for the most part the car has won um, and that, that's beginning to change but I think play streets were one of the expressions of that battle right as you'll know they emerged I think a bit after the first world war during that first wave of of the growth of the car um as a direct reaction to traffic danger you know typically groups of mums coming together and saying it is outrageous that you know the, the streets where we live which used to be where our kids could play safely have become dangerous places because of all these cars and we need to do something about it um and you know we're now scholars um Alison Stenning who who's up your way Mm, in Newcastle is doing some great research on this and and it's showing the extent to which families and particularly mothers were, were were pushing back against the creeping domination of the car um and so the new play street model which has emerged in the last 10 years or so I mean, in many ways, it's much more modest. It's really, it's just saying, oh, please, car drivers, just stop driving up our street for a couple of hours a week out of the, you know, 120 or however many hours there are uh, so that we can come out of our front doors and and play and socialize. But it is part of that uh, pushback, I think, and of that kind of reappraisal um, of the, what, has for much of the 20th century and the early 21st century been a kind of sort of settled position, which is that streets are for cars. Um, they're for cars to move along and they're for cars to park in and nobody else has a look in. And so that's why I'm, uh, one of the reasons I'm so interested in, in play streets is because they, they're actually a comparatively low cost, in fact, zero cost, low barrier to entry, um, way to make visible uh, and, and, give people a taste of what streets and neighbourhoods could be like if we opened them up for social uses like play and even just meeting and chatting.
0: Absolutely. And, of course, you're talking to a kindred spirit here because I wrote a whole book on on this, Roads bill for Cars. And, you know, roads were, were, were had multitude of uses uh, throughout history and they've just become mono-use. And nobody can imagine, you know... The use of roads for anything other than than motor cars. So there is a there is a sentence in your book, and it jumped out at me for that reason, probably, and that is, and I'll quote to you. Um, and I love this: um, uh, children need to be seen to be a leadership, uh, a legitimate road user group because they're not, are they? They are absolutely not. They are they are seen to be interlopers.
2: I think uh, it's probably worse than that. Uh, uh, Certainly for highway engineers, they're o- are often objects of terror, <laughs> um, not because of the harm that they can do, because of course, ch- children, you know, even if they try really, really hard, they're actually not very capable of doing serious harm, but because of, you know, what might happen if if the highway engineers get things wrong. And so children, you know, are seen as unpredictable, um, wayward, stupid, um, just scary creatures um, who can <laughs> Uh, really mess up the ordered and tidy um, traffic flow plans of the highway engineer and so uh, the, either way that they are kind of basically to be taken out of the picture and again in 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 my book I write about how the playground the public play area was invented as a way of taking children out of the picture of streets um there was a straightforward problem for for politicians and 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 you know, the um, the men who were running the cities back in the early 20th century, which is all these cars were were literally killing hundreds of children a year, and uh, the 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 you know citizens were not very happy about it. So playgrounds were invented as a quote safe place to play uh, that removed children or or were supposed to remove children from. Uh, from from streets. In fact, it didn't really work out that way, but it's still sort of baked into a lot of the thinking of urban planning and transport planning that uh, children do not have a claim uh, of freedom of movement. Um, they are essentially creatures who need to be corralled and put into different forms of, of reservations of, of which the playground is the most obvious and most a depressing
0: example. Hmm. So let, let's get on to your book then. So we, we, we've mentioned it in, in passing. There, uh, urban playground. Now it is there is on on the front cover there is a bicycle and a, a kind of like a, a, a trailer on the back, uh, but it's not a bicycling book. So, you, so you're on the podcast today. It's a it's a bicycling podcast, but we've got to stress it's not a bicycling book. But there are, there are there's bicycling in there because cycling is is a key form of transport for children. Right. So
2: at the heart of the book is a, a definition or a, or a, a framework, what counts as a child-friendly neighbourhood, a child-friendly town, a child-friendly city. Okay. And, and that framework has two dimensions. There are two aspects to it. Um, one aspect is, is probably it's reasonably obvious, which is that a child-friendly neighbourhood is a neighbourhood where there's lots of fun things for children to do. Um, so that would include play- playgrounds, you know, natural places, sporting facilities. Um, but then there's the other dimension. And that dimension is mobility. It's that a child-friendly neighbourhood is a neighbourhood where it's easy for children to get around, crucially for children to get around under their own steam. You know, what what the the academics call children's independent mobility. And again, you'll know of all of the, the research on on that. And that means walking, cycling and scooting, right? Because heads up, Children don't have driving licences. Um, if we want to make it easier for children to get around, we have to be talking about improving uh, uh, walking and cycling networks and features and, and and infrastructure. So that that runs that framework runs right the way through my book, and that's why I've got you know quite significant sections in the book talking about cycling uh, as well as walking. And you know, there's another di- sort of way of looking at this is if we take the time to ask children themselves what they like and don't like and what they'd like to change about the towns and cities where they're growing up then right at the top of the list is being able to get around more easily and uh and especially by bike children love cycling they love being able to get around you know what it's still one of the most resonant milestones in any child's life is when they learn how to ride a bike Um, and you know one of the the the, um, uh, sort of under underexplored tragedies I think of modern childhood is how the the role of the bike has has diminished so much you know when I was growing up um, I, I, I grew up in a sort of rural Home counties of England you know I had I, I could basically ride as far as I liked from about the age of 11 or 12 as long as I got back home in time for tea it was un, my my horizons were unbounded and and I, I really do feel so sorry for children today uh, because so few children have anything like that um opportunity you know to just get on a bike and ride uh, it's it's just vanished from so many children's lives. And 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 yet, of course, if we look over the North Sea at the Netherlands um, or Denmark, we realise that um, actually this is not an inevitable consequence of modern life. But it's quite possible to build and design towns and cities so that children today have exactly that kind of freedom.
0: Is it not the case, though, that it, it, it's not just the built environment that, that's at issue here and, it, and is a problem and an obstacle, perhaps, it's also the, like the concept of stranger danger. So if you ask people why they don't let their kids, you know, have the same freedom as you've just described, it, it's not just because, well, cars might kill them, which is clearly one, one great fear. It's also this, this deeply embedded fear of child abduction, of, of, of all sorts of horrible things that people imagine are going to happen if you let your child wander.
2: In one sense, that's true. Um, I mean, of course, you know, we could argue about the statistics, and you'll probably know that the statistics show that, that you're at no greater risk of, of, of child abduction now than you were 20, 40, or 60 years ago. Um, people don't really pay too much attention to numbers when it comes to risk. And so I, I don't tend to push that, that line of thought too much. I guess what I would say is that um, we live in places where car use is normalized and where anything other than car use, especially children traveling around, um, independently is a bit weird. Um, and, and, and so we've, we've lost confidence as a culture in, uh, the safety of the world outside our front doors. And then that gets expressed in a kind of bogeyman narrative about all the scary things, especially the scary people who are, who are waiting. Um, it's not a realistic assessment of what's actually happening. It's 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 the sort of sum of all our fears, and and I think we're beginning to wake up to that, and and especially when you know we start to see how neighbourhoods could be different. So I think Waltham Forest actually is 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 perhaps a little bit of an example. You do see children playing in the street in parts of Walthamstone now to a much greater extent than you used to it wasn't part of the plan for mini holland but it's kind of inevitable if you you know stop traffic um and you create quiet patches of street then guess what kids come out and play um so i I, i'm you know if this is a hard thing to turn around this is 120 years of baked in car centric planning and all of the cultural Consequences of that, and there are other changes as well that, that are important. You know, changes in, in family working patterns, uh, you know, a greater growth of fear. Generally, um, they're not they're not unimportant. But I still believe that um, the, the the way we build towns and cities effectively hardwires um, captive children and a car centric. Uh, way of life and that's that's at the fundamental that's that's the the um the the fundamental thing we need to change um if we don't do anything about that then everything else is just
0: um hot air i think Mm. well talking about hot air i I would now like to bring in my co-host david uh, who will take us through to an ad break
1: Hey Carlton, thanks so much, and it's, it's always my pleasure to talk about our advertiser. This is a long-time loyal advertiser. You all know who I'm talking about. It's Jensen USA at JensenUSA.com slash The Spokesman. I've been telling you for years now, years, that Jensen is the place where you can get a great selection of every kind of product that you need for your cycling lifestyle at amazing prices, and what really sets them apart because, of course, there's lots of online retailers out there. But what really sets them apart is their unbelievable support. When you call and you've got a question about something, you'll end up talking to one of their gear advisors. And these are cyclists. I've been there. I've seen it. These are folks who, who ride their bikes to and from work. These are folks who ride at lunch, who go out on group rides after work because they just enjoy cycling so much. Uh, and, and so you know that when you call, you'll be talking to somebody who has knowledge of the products that you're calling about if you're looking for a new bike whether it's a mountain bike a road bike a gravel bike a fat bike what are you looking for go ahead and check them out jensen usa they are the place where you will find everything you need for your cycling lifestyle it's jensenusacom slash the spokesman we thank them so much for their support and we thank you for supporting jensen usa all right carlton let's get back to the show
0: Uh, Thanks, David. And we are back with with Tim Gill, who is the author of uh, Urban Playground. And the subhead to that is how child friendly planning and design can save cities. Now, interestingly, Tim, this book is published by Reba. So you're going to be talking, presumably, to some pretty influential people who can make changes. So tell us what Reba is and tell us how this book uh, could potentially be influential. Okay, so REBA is the Royal
2: Institution of British Architects. Uh, so it's, you know, it's the kind of uh, the member organisation for architects. Uh, it's, pretty, you know, the Royal is there for a reason, I guess. Um, I'm not an architect, so I was quite flattered to be asked to write the book. Um, and, and also very happy because, I mean, I come at this as a kind of advocate and a campaigner um, of, of some, you know, I've been at this for a fair few years and, and and I do um, strongly believe that that the people who shape the built environment, so planners, architects, designers, and, of course, the politicians who, who ultimately set the rules, uh, they're the people that we need to reach if we're going to get healthier, more sustainable, and more child-friendly towns and cities. So uh, I was really delighted to be offered the chance uh, to write the book by Reba. And, indeed, I, I am uh milking that connection for all it's worth so I'll be doing some uh you know uh, professional development talks for reBA I think coming up in May um I'm uh you know liaising with with the people there about how we can get the word out uh, and and I I guess I wanted to be the book to be the kind of book that persuades there are there's a significant pool of people out there who are quite interested in the idea of of making neighbours more child-friendly. There are quite a lot of people who've got a, you know, a child development background, education or outdoor learning, um, play work, you know, people who, who, who support children's play. They're the converted, if you like. Um, and, and I spend a lot of time with, with a lot of, of people from that, those sort of communities. And for, uh, but they're not the people I want to reach with the book. The people I want to reach with the book are, you know, mayors, um, heads of planning, uh, transport planners, and I want them to open the book and flick through it and think, oh, what's that picture in there for? Why, is they, why has he got this graph? Why is there that, that amazing map? So figure 1.1, the map that shows you how the horizons of childhood have been shrinking over four generations. Uh, I, that's the kind of image I want to, to pull someone in and, and and then get them to think about, you know, maybe their own lives, their own childhood. If they have children, What's going on for the the children they know in their lives today, and then get them to 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 look at their own work and their own um, values and their um, the way they do their job or make the decisions they're making with a children's lens in place. Um, and and my hope is that that will make them, uh, you know, both realise the importance and the power of of a good good urban planning for children but also to see how thinking about children in urban planning and design is part of a move towards creating healthier and more sustainable places
0: and you don't want uh the people reading this book who are going to be influencing the built environment in the, in the years to come to just go oh well we want we will we'll just put a, a wild playground in them it, It's it's not something just you don't want to corral kids you want to do something else for kids. Exactly. So, so th- there's a key passage in the book
2: which goes something along the lines of, you know, in a sense, the goal of the child-friendly planner or designer is to turn, is to kind of turn the playground inside out and to take all of those offers that, that m- could well be in place in a good playground, but, but make sure that the whole, you know, that the whole of a neighbourhood um, where children are living growing up allows them, uh, you know, t- to play, to have contact with nature, but also to get around freely um, and without the threat of, of traffic danger.
0: So in, in the book, uh, there are there are an awful lot of um, case studies. And I'm presuming you've, you've visited all of these cities you, you, you're talking about?
2: I visited most of them. I didn't quite get to um, uh, a few of them for various reasons. But I think there's about a dozen cities in, in uh, as well as London. And I, I got to nine of them.
0: Let's, let's talk about two of them. Um and, and they have good cycling resonance, so, so we can like we can uh, even though your your book's not about cycling, we can talk about cycling in, in these these the, the two cities that I'll, I'll choose so Ghent uh Ghent i 've done a, a, a guardian article about um uh, Birmingham you know doing a, a gentification and and Ghent is now famous in in transport circles for its circulation plan which has done the same as Wolfhamstone in many respects in that it, 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 it created safe spaces for children to play. So tell me a little bit about Ghent and why it's so significant or why you chose it for your book. Sure. Um, so Ghent... In Belgium, like I a, say. So a, Ghent in Belgium. Yes, it's in
2: Flanders. Yeah. So it's, it's in the, the Dutch speaking part of Belgium. And it, Flanders is a part of the world where, where the idea of child-friendliness has taken some hold. So it's got some profile within, you know, planning and local authorities um, kind of compete with each other to an extent to, to be labelled child-friendly. And Ghent is generally seen as the most child-friendly city in Flanders. Um, and, and actually, there's quite high public awareness of that. It's almost a badge of honour for the city. So that's been in place for a fair while. Um and one, the one of the reasons I picked again was was that there's a team within the local authority. Now I know this is a bit sort of geeky and, and, and bureaucratic, but it really matters that there's four people, at least when I visited, whose job it is to work with other departments so that they do a better job for children. So these people they will be alongside the planners um, who are planning a new development, you know, in a new part of the city. Um, They'll be working alongside the regeneration team. There's a big regeneration project that I write about in the book um, in a in a rundown 19th century part of the city. Um, Very uh, ambitious, um, you know, had a a lot of careful work with residents um, and, and, and local groups to Make sure that what was going on was 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 right, you know, was would work for them, and that they wouldn't have um, they wouldn't be hostile to to that. And again, children and thinking about children was woven into that project. There's a lovely um, a, a feature called the red carpet, and it is literally a kind of red path that runs for a couple of kilometres through this part of Ghent that joins up different local squares and public spaces and schools and links into other parts of the city. And all that came about because uh, at the political level, this idea of child friendliness has purchase, it has resonance. Um, and so the politicians are, you know, are proud to say that Ghent is a child-friendly city and they put resources uh, to to give that some, some meaning. And and you're right to mention the circulation plan. It's, it it had just not long been in place. I think maybe less than a year when I visited, and it was really striking how much of a difference it made to the city. And this is not, uh, you'll know this, but but for listeners who don't realise, you know, this this is not just about a tiny, you know, bit in the kind of historic core of, of Ghent that that might you know preserve the chocolate the chocolate box bits that all the tourists visit. This was a really major. Um, transformational change in the way people get around the whole of this city of I think it's about 300,000 people Um, and people were predicting you know chaos and the economy you know all of the stuff that we know happens uh, in this sort of um, with this sort of scheme and you know the world did not end and now I think yeah I think I read your article I may have even quoted from it uh, or stolen one of the quotes from one of the people you vox popped um, people just say it's great you know of course there are, some people will, will lose out and again your, your podcast followers will know that there, there is no way of uh, improving things for walking and cycling that doesn't have an impact a negative impact on car users you can't do it it's basic sort of spatial uh spatial justice really but the changes that have come about in Ghent including changes for children, more children walking and cycling to school, um, much uh, lower levels of child accidents, um, lower levels of p- pollution, are all um, absolutely in the direction that anyone would want to see and are particularly important for children and families.
0: And that, that red carpet idea looked lovely. That, that absolutely was one thing that jumped out of, of your book. And I wasn't aware of, of that when I was doing my Ghent piece for for the guardian now i had gary fisher the mountain bike uh, icon on the show recently and he was telling me about uh fruta colorado which isn't in your book uh, for various some reasons but fruta colorado and i've got to go and check this out and see if if, if what uh, gary said is it is kind of true but he said do you know what a pump track is tim yes okay so he says there's a bunch of interlinked pump tracks in fruta which, in effect, allow you know a a a preteen, a teen child, to basically um, take a pump track all the way from their their house to school, because it's just you know so it's like a red carpet, but for 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 older kids. So using that concept, it's like, wh- wh- how do you define childhood? Because what's going to be good? Um, for toddlers and for, for, you know, six, seven, eight-year-olds is perhaps very different to what a preteen and a teen is going to want. And those those two user groups are going to be in conflict to each other. So how do you square that circle? Right.
2: that That is a really good uh, question. Uh, in, in the book, I use the UN Convention as my sort of definition of a child. Uh, and it so that's anyone from the age of zero to 18. Now, in ordinary language, that's a bit clunky because no self-respecting teenager would, would really recognize that word child uh, to, as applying to them. Uh, and more to the point and, and to your point, uh, some of the details are going to be very different for teenagers compared to, you know, uh, babes in arms um, and, and, and of course, the, their parents and caregivers. And We need and planners need to be attuned to those differences. But actually, I still would argue and argue in the book that that basic framework, the framework I talked about, still applies. Teenagers still want to to be able to get around their neighborhood easily and freely. And, uh, you know, until such time as as a few of them might get car licenses, which is pretty late on in that process and getting ever later. um, That really does mean walking, cycling, scooting and the like and teenagers also want choice and different options as to where they can hang out and meet their friends so the details of those choices are going to be a little bit different and there is some potential for conflict although i i would argue actually that good let's think about parks and parks and open spaces a great park and open a great public park should be a place where anyone of any age actually can ship up and can you know find things to do and places to hang out and linger and enjoy that space um, and th- it's not that difficult to come up with park designs that allow that to happen, um, especially if you work with the different you know user groups. Um, and teenagers are very vocal actually about what they like and don't like about parks and public spaces. So one of the pieces of work that I quote in the book is from another city in Colorado, uh, Boulder, Colorado. I didn't actually make it to Boulder. I'd love to get there. But it has a very well-respected youth participation project. So it does a lot of work bringing in the voices of children, and young people, including those groups that don't often get a say. You know, black and minority ethnic youth, uh, young women who, who are often ignored or downplayed and and bringing their voices into, uh, in the example in my book, a quite high profile downtown Public space, and you could point to features in that park that have been put in because of what the young people were saying, and you can also see how those features actually made that park work better for everybody. So, you know, there, there, there's actually not that much conflict when it comes to 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 uh, if you start from the point of progressive, human scale, sustainable, democratic design. Um, you know, you can get it right uh, for um, almost all of the time, I think.
0: Mm. So we talked about Ghent. We've even uh, segued into Boulder, Colorado and Fruta, Colorado. Uh, But let's go back to another one of the cities that that, uh, you highlighted in your book and is mentioned quite in a few places, and that's Tel Aviv. Uh, An awful lot of people in Israel uh, might not associate uh, Tel Aviv with uh, progressive Uh, policies for children but tell us tell us what's been happening in in tel aviv um to make it progressive for children right so
2: tel aviv is possibly the city that that went furthest fastest in sort of picking up this idea of becoming more child-friendly and running with it and putting serious money behind it so and it's an interesting story um it the precursor is that back in the early 2010s, 2011, 2012, um, there were big protests throughout Israel about, from young families, families with young children, about basically they're having a really hard time. Cost of living, cost of childcare, quality of childcare. There were some appalling tragedies involving young children dying in childcare settings, like really awful. Um, and Tel Aviv was one of, inevitably one of the kind of hotspots of that because it is. In, you know, it's Israel's biggest city and most progressive in, in some respects, and then um, the the Bernard van Leer Foundation, who are an NGO uh, that has embraced this this idea of child friendliness in its it's got a program called Urban ninety five, which invites um, everyone, but city decision makers, to see cities from a height of 95 centimetres. So that's the average height of a three-year-old. It's a really interesting initiative, and it's worked closely with a number of cities. So it, it got a foothold in Tel Aviv, um, and the the municipality, Tel Aviv-Yafo municipality, created a post and a, and a bit of money and some momentum around the idea of making the city more child-friendly. It didn't really know what it was going to do. And one of the first things that the city did uh, was take a bunch of its officers to Copenhagen. Right. As, and I was there for this two day, you know, study tour. Um, they went to the offices of Gale Architects and they saw a bunch of spaces. Um, they spoke with the head of parks. Um, I did a session with them around risk and it it kind of blew their minds, I think. I'm not being modest when I say that. And and that group came back to Tel Aviv absolutely fired up about what the city could do. And as a result, um, you know, the whole of the municipality, sort of the, the relevant departments and teams sort of pivoted and started doing things very differently. So you suddenly saw, you know, sand pits springing up all over the city. Now, anybody who knows anything about playground design will know that Councils get pretty nervous about sandpits, and there's a whole load of risk aversion and and and, and you know, unnecessary fears about that. But sandpits are actually great for kids, especially younger kids. Um, you also saw um programming, so you saw you know events, um, a, a new app being developed that was aimed at um children with uh, families with young children, and you saw also these wider conversations about how the city could become a better place for children. Uh, to get around, and and there's again there's a little bit of history which I, I, you may not be aware of. I wasn't, I must confess, before I went, but Tel Aviv has a history of, you know, links to progressive urban planning going back to to um, to Geddes and and you know the the actual founding of the city and and it, and its um and its built form in the into in the interwar years. So and some of that has carried through. So for instance, the city um. People live right downtown in Tel Aviv. Uh, it's not one of those cities that has that kind of got hollowed out in the seventies, um, with with you know the business districts or retail where nobody actually lived. So that means there's now a pool of urban dwellers, um, some of whom are having kids who are living right in the downtown of the city, um, and so that's an opportunity as well. So that so you you had a kind of combination of circumstances that led the city to be doing some really interesting work um, on the back of this vision of becoming a better place for children and families to live. And again, final point, um, Israel and Tel Aviv, both places with quite large populations of children uh, and, and families with young children. So there was a demographic driver behind what was happening in Tel Aviv as well.
0: Yes. So somewhere with lots of kids, You'd be a bit bonkers not to want to design for kids, you would think. But then, say somewhere in the Cotswolds uh, in the UK, which is—I might be summarising here, awfully here—but but doesn't have many children. So, what what kind of areas and cities that perhaps don't have that large phalanx of kids to obviously want to design for? What should they be doing, or should they be doing anything at all? Yeah. That's a, a really good question. Um, I think there are two sides to it. One one is
2: it's the, the point that, you know, Enrique Penalosa makes. So former mayor of Bogota um, famously, you know, coined the phrase that children are an indicator species for cities. Um, and I think that's actually more than just a, a slogan. It, 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 it's true. So if you can get, you know, cities or neighbourhoods, that work well for children they'll work well for older people for instance you know and again this is in design and planning terms older people um, especially if they as they uh, start to you know be less able to use cars are really dependent on good local walking and cycling want to have nice places to uh, parks and squares to visit you know, within walking distance. So there's a lot of overlap there. So the, so thinking about children is a, is a a pathway to better design. Um, the other side of the argument, I think, is, is maybe it's a bit, it's, it's longer term, uh, but it's, it's the kind of argument that some of the cities I looked at used, which is our long-term prospects as a city depend upon this being a place that families want to live in, right? And I think that might have resonance in, you know, Cotswold retirement visit villages. Um, In really simple terms, if you don't have families moving in uh, to your settlement, to your patch, then your patch in 20, 40, 60 years is going to be at mortal threat. Um, There will simply not be people living in it. So there will not be an economy there will not be services there will not be people you know able to work uh, or available to do all the things that we know need to happen to keep um human habitats ticking along i know that might seem a little bit um you know sort of it, 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 it's a more strategic and long-term point but it's precisely the point for instance that rotterdam picked up on And Rotterdam is a city you'll know. I I devote a whole chapter to it in my book because uh, it it, it invested more in this agenda than any other city on earth, so far as I can tell. And it did so because back in 2006, it became really clear that any families that had the resources were fleeing the city because it was, to put it bluntly, such a dump to bring up a child. And particularly in the Netherlands, that is not um, an image that you want to have as a municipality. So. You know, it's a long term argument. And part of what's in my book is that thinking about children helps decision makers to think more and to position themselves more as, as looking to the long term, looking to our collective future, including our response to the climate crisis. Um, but that's if I had a mayor of a Cotswold town next to me right now, that is certainly one of the points I would be making.
0: And, and talking about mayors and you mentioned uh Enrico uh, Penaloza, who, of course, famously, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase here slightly, but he, he said a, a cycleway is a symbol that shows a citizen on a $30 bicycle is equally important as a citizen in a $30,000 car. Now, his brother, Gil, did the forward to your book.
2: Indeed. And, you know, he, he is also... The founder of the NGO 880 Cities, um, which, you know, well-respected international um, advocacy organization, that that, again it asks uh, us to look at cities from the point of view of an eight-year-old and the point of view of an eighty-year-old. And and and, and its, its message is if we can get cities to work well for those two age groups. Then they will work well for everyone, and it, and it's again. There's a quote from Gill that you may have spotted in inside the book, where he says we have to stop designing cities as if everyone were 30 years old and athletic. And actually, I think that's a really important message, particularly for the cycling world. And I'm I'm conscious of now of, of of some of your audience. I'm uh, by the way, I'm a long-standing cyclist um i I spent 10 years of my life commuter cycling through london in the 90s um you know when it was it was a lot harder than it is now um i you know i'm a fully signed up member of the cycling fan club but i do think cycling has planet cycling has a bit of a problem uh which is probably what you know you're, you're familiar with um which is it can be it can be typecast you know stereotyped as you know, middle class white guys in Lycra shouting for you know for more stuff. And uh actually the opposite is the case. Cycling is so important for so many groups who go beyond that demographic. Um but I think uh for for, for the cycling world to, to really build on the progress it's made, which is impressive, um it has to start changing the terms of this conversation and bringing children into the conversation about cycling, I think, could be an absolute game changer um, and could really uh, see cities that have up to now been kind of nervous about embracing cycling um, start to invest much more time and money in it. And also, you know, the, the, it's pretty you know, if you've got groups of children actually in meetings or or in presentations saying to the adults, saying to the grown-ups, why on earth aren't you making it easier for me to cycle now? It's so obvious how much better it would be for everybody if instead of 2% of of kids cycling to school every day, it was 20% or 40%. You know, if you had that direct expression of children's wishes, um, in these debates about transport planning, I, I think it would it would make a huge difference. And the cycling world is really missing a trick by not talking more about children.
0: I, I was cycling with my son, and my son is 22 now, and he's actually he's come back from China uh, on his bike. He's a he's a proficient cyclist. He's probably that uh, that demographic usually talked about of, of you know a young lycra clad uh, white male. We were cycling uh in some of of Newcastle called Jesmond, where they've just put in city council have just put in protected cycleways um alongside the road. So they're not fully, you know, segregated, not fully separated, but they're they're protected on on certain junctions. And so my son was we were riding along and my son was complaining about them saying, Well, you know, I wouldn't use that particular bit of infrastructure and look at this traffic light here. It's just, you know, I wouldn't stop there because I just go straight around. I said, Josh, it's it's not designed for you. It's designed for kids. It's designed for people who y- you you are perfectly able to use the roads as is. You know, you 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 block you know people behind you. You you're in the middle of the road. You're you're great. You're fine. But other people aren't going to be like that. So this particular bit of infrastructure that you're poo pooing uh, isn't designed for you. It's designed for the people who can't do the things you do. So basically, we need more of that. Yes.
2: Absolutely yes. So again, in the book, I uh, showcase the work of Vancouver, um, and it's you know all ages and abilities uh, guidance on cycle infrastructure, which which makes precisely that point that that you you need to make sure as far as possible that the the stuff you put in is stuff that you know to steal from Chris Boardman that, that a twelve year old independent cyclist um, is confident to use, um, and you know. I I know that it comes back to this point, you know, sometimes it can be a bit irritating having to deal with younger children in the public realm. You know, children are not entirely predictable. They have a playfulness and, you know, exuberance and kind of physicality that means that, you know, that, that, that commuter cyclist that's trying to, you know, beat their Strava record um, on the commute home might get a bit upset if they come across... Um, a, a five-year-old on a um, on, on their first bike, but I hope that um, you know, in 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 sort of calmness, and and you know, once once that cyclist has got home, they'll realise that actually, it really is in their interest um, to hear and um, involve children more, and to get uh, the people who shape our cities to be thinking more about children, because that way, um, we get you know more infrastructure we get better infrastructure um, and we also pave the way for the kind of long-term future of cycling as a respected and strategic form of transport and that is not going to happen unless we can you know inculcate it in this generation and coming generations of travelers which means children.
0: Mm. Tim it's been fascinating talking to you thank you ever so much for, for for taking the time and let's just find out uh where people can get hold well you've said before where they can get uh your your uh no fear book but let's first of all talk about uh where they can get uh this current book urban playground where where can people buy this book
2: right so it is available from good booksellers uh it's it's absolutely available worldwide from the reba Books, online bookstore, so that's RebaBooks.com. Uh, Amazon has it. The Book Depository has it. Uh, I know several international booksellers have it online. There isn't. There are different ebook versions available. You'll need to go to the Taylor and Francis publisher's website for the ebook, um, at least for now. And you can find a bunch of information, including some samples, uh, on my website. So my website is Rethinking Childhood dot com. Uh, and now I've put up a few blog posts about the book there. And, and I'm really keen, uh, of course, for people to get hold of it, but also for people to tell me what they think of it. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, I really put a lot of time and effort into making uh, it as persuasive as I could. And I'm very keen to hear uh, how it's going down.
0: Well, I'm looking forward to Newcastle, my hometown, changing in the future because I don't think I'm giving too many trade secrets away uh, here. But that one of the the, the main town planner, city planners of Newcastle has your book, and I know that because I was talking to him the other day about something different. I don't know why why it came up uh, about talking about your book, but we we did we talked about your book, Tim, and um, and and hopefully he's going to be taking some of those policies, and he's just as much blown away. Uh, by the concepts in there that those people the, the Israelis you took or you were in Copenhagen with uh uh were to do stuff for Tel Aviv.
2: Yeah well that's good to hear and and uh, you know I ha- I've had some nice feedback so far um including from exactly the audiences that that I was targeting so you know urban designers um master planners you improve cities for children you improve cities for everybody absolutely and I think you also you By talking about children, you can't help but look more towards the future and that that long term future that where we know there are big challenges awaiting us. And you also can't help but think in a more kind of collective way, you know, think about the public good. So, um, again, this was a lesson from one of the cities that I visited from Boulder that that by bringing in the voices of children, they in this project in the town centre, they helped to reduce the. You know impact or the, the negative impact of some of the vested interests in that project that were screaming for whatever it might be that was actually basically just about about them and their their narrow concerns and and I think that ultimately that's you know that's what I think we learn uh, if we look at Greta Thunberg and her influence on the climate debate. It's not that she's a kind of you know it's an identity politics thing. It's her speaking with the authentic voice of somebody who has a massive stake in the long-term collective future of the planet. And I think that's the most powerful catalytic um, impact of, the, of bringing in the voices and
0: views of children. That's Tim Gill there. And thanks to you for listening to the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. Show notes and more can be found on the-spokesman.com. On the next episode, I'll be talking about child's play and mobility with academics and campaigners Alison Stenning and Sally Watson. Meanwhile, get out there and ride.